Blog Talk Radio. It's Film Festival Radio, the show where superstars and future stars happily coexist together. And now, here's your host, Janice Malone. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to Film Festival Radio Show with me, Janice Malone here. Hope you are having a really good day or maybe a good evening, whatever time zone you're in and whatever part of the world we hope is pleasant. You're staying safe, you're staying healthy, and you're just going about your daily task and just maybe have a song in your heart. <laughs> okay. I try that. It does work sometimes. It really does. So, but you know what? The main thing is you are here. You've joined us to listen to uh, the show, and we always appreciate that. We've been doing our show here uh, for 13 years. We started 2007, and we've just had hundreds of guests, and that includes today's show here. Two very talented guests here, and we'll start with our guest for this segment, and he is a best Selling New York Times bestselling, internationally acclaimed author. His name is Owen Colfer. And, of course, if you are a fan of Artemis Fowl, the series, such a popular series, it's just been selling like crazy all over the world for many years now. And guess what? Guess what? Owen Colfer is back because his favorite guy, his favorite little character, Artemis Fowl, is back back with a brand new book is called Deny All Charges. And this time, Artemis has got some buddies with him. He's got his two younger brothers, uh, Miles and Beckett, and they have uh, a, a, a kind of, kind of, this nun. Man, this nun is kind of, kind of shadowy there. She's kind of, she's kind of scary, a, a scary nun. That's and they've got a, an intern, uh, they've got a troll with them. They've got a cast of characters in this, this series of books, uh, Deny All Charges. And so we last talked to author Owen about, what, three months ago? And that's when uh, Disney Plus had um, released their film uh, about the last book that he had done with the Artemis Fowl series, and it became... Um, a, a movie it was back in June, to be more exact, and so here he comes back again with the latest uh, Artemis Fowl book, and we are so delighted to always have him come on the show. He's such a delight to chat with, and he's going to be calling us once again all the way from his beautiful country in beautiful Ireland, and so let's bring him on board. We're just waiting for the operator to connect with us here, and uh, I've got the red light here to say that she has connected us, so let's switch over to the next line and join our guest, New York Times bestselling author, internationally acclaimed author, Owen Colfer, to talk about his latest book, yeah, his latest book. I've got a fan here in the studio. His latest book, Deny All Charges. So let's bring him on right now and switch it over. Bye-bye. And Janice, you're now on the line with Owen. Well, hello, Mr. Owen. Nice to chat with you again. It's nice to chat with you. How are you? I'm wonderful. The last time that we, we chatted was in June, and it was on the eve of the Disney Plus releasing uh, the movie version of your last uh, book. Yeah. <laughs> All exciting. And now. That's a, yes. That, it's very exciting. That seems like about 100 years ago, <laughs> considering everything that's happened. It's been a busy summer. It's been a busy summer, I think, for all of us. It sure has. Well, now yeah. your little buddy, Artemis Fowl, is, is back with his uh, a very hilarious spinoff adventure series, and now he's got some buddies with him. I understand his brothers, Miles and Beckett, are with Artemis along with some other people. So tell us all about this spinoff series. 
Well, when I finished the Artemis Fowl books, which was possibly seven years ago, I really needed a break from the world of leprechauns. And so I went away and did some mature stuff like dragons and time travel. But now, uh, having gotten that out of my system, uh, I'm back to the magical world. Uh, but this time, I am using Miles, or sorry, Artemis's uh, twin little brothers. Uh, and I base them very loosely on my own sons. Uh, so one of them is thematically neat and academic, and then the other guy is very sporty and outgoing and friendly. Uh, so uh, it, they're off uh, trying to fly around the world and trying to hunt for gold and knowledge and getting tangled up with fairy cat burglars uh, and police forces. And uh, it's just all uh, a big roller coaster of fun and laughs, if you like that kind of thing. I understand there is a a kind of a shady, shadowy nun that's a part of the crew. Tell us about this nun. The nun, uh, yes, uh, the, uh, Sister Geronima of Bilbao. She is a Spanish nun who's involved in a very shady organization called Acronym, and they their brief is to hunt down uh, magical creatures. Uh, and she is kind of the, the leader of this very uh, shady group. And uh, they are after Miles and Beckett because Miles and Beckett are, of course, friends of the fairy people. So they think that they might be a way into the fairy world will be to capture Miles and Beckett. And that is their big mistake because Miles and Beckett end up taking the entire organization uh, down using their smarts and their... Uh, resources and of course uh, Beckett's uh, fighting abilities so they're very much like an X-Files type of organization um, it's, 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 it's all very funny and very light hearted and the idea that a nun would be kind of a spy uh, is, is quite ridiculous but in this world uh, anything is possible yeah especially in 2020 almost anything is, is possible but well, I t- I, let, me, let me tell you, Janice, it's hard to make things unbelievable now. It is. Because anything can happen. Yeah. So you, I can write anything, and last year that would have been, my publisher would have said, no, that's too ridiculous and stupid. Now they say that is very believable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, the world has just, it's completely changing. Uh, everything is... Everything is, it's like we're in the upside down. Everything uh-huh. is just, anything you thought couldn't happen is already happening somewhere. Well, this sounds like my kind of nun here. She's not your typical, uh, yeah, I, I like her already. I, no. <laughs> I like her. No, she's not, she doesn't like kids. She, she doesn't like kids very much, but uh, she does love a nice hat. So she loves to have a lovely, instead of the usual nun habit, she has a very fashionable, um, you know, woven hat and a beautiful linen uh, habit. So, yeah, she's quite a cool nun. Um, uh, I mean, so, but I, so you wouldn't uh, you wouldn't mess with her really. She's, no. she's, I really like her as a character. Well, now I understand. But right now, as we speak, you are calling in all the way from the beautiful country of Ireland, and you sound like you're across the street. Yes. <laughs> so, what part? I know technology is fantastic. Isn't it great? It's just fantastic. So, so with you being uh, an Irishman, uh, what, how do you think your heritage? has played into your just wonderful fascination with writing this type of fiction? Well, we are very lucky here in Ireland because uh, we teach our mythology in schools. Uh, And not so much anymore, but when I was going to school back in the uh, 70s and 80s, there were really was only one culture in Ireland, and that, and that was the, the local culture. So we were able to teach mythology now. Things have changed now, so we have the mythologies of a lot of different countries which have enriched our own culture uh, beyond measure. But as I've traveled around the world, I've realized that often magical stories are not really taught in schools. It's mostly for very factual stuff. And I think that's a great shame because kids love hearing about this. And really, you can learn an awful lot about a nation and about their values by listening to their legends. So when I was in school, I loved hearing these legends. When I became a teacher, I loved learning the legends of other cultures while teaching our legends. Uh, And uh, so that's what I draw upon when I'm writing about 
and Artemis and his family is the creatures and the legends of, of ancient Ireland. Well, you've done an, just an amazing job of it. Your books are just beloved around the world, uh, and those, those New York Times best-selling numbers speak for themselves. Uh, but, you know, I think here in America, we also have a legendary uh, mythology creature. It's called Congress, but that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> that is definitely the best line of this interview, 100%. I'm going to write that down and you use it in, write. A, in a fairy story. <laughs> yeah, you got to, because it's so, it's, unfortunately, so true. <laughs> but... <laughs> All you can do is laugh. That's all you can do. So, I, I, well, it's easier for me, I think, because I'm in another country. Yes, so yes. it might be harder for you to laugh. Absolutely. In the well, next book, in my next book, now Congress will be a shadowy government organization run by leprechauns. Yes, so, there you go. Yeah, that goes. There you go. <laughs> oh my God! Well, before they shut me off here, Owen, what's next for your your little buddy Artemis? What's another Disney movie, maybe, or what? Well, that would be great. I actually have, uh, I wrote a book in between the Artemis books called High Fire, which was about a dragon. And that has been turned into a TV show for Amazon and, and starring Nick Nick Cage as the dragon. So I think that would be very interesting to see uh, Nick Cage covered in the dragon suit. So that's going to be great fun. Okay. So hopefully that will be out sometime next year. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. Well, we'll be stay tuning uh, for that one, and also the, you know, it just seems like Artemis, now he has all of his nefarious friends uh, hanging out with him, and see what happens with that family yeah. jet, and uh, we'll go out and get the book. Yeah. Once again, that book is, you know, it's going to be a bestseller, Deny All Charges. So, Owen, thank you so much, as always. I look forward to chatting with you next year, or maybe if you got something else to so. Okay, thank you. Take care now. Well, we Okay, thank you so much, Owen, for uh, another really fun interview. And my goodness, he called us all the way from Dublin. Was that not a really clear call as far as audio? It just sounds like he was across the street or next door or something. I've talked to people across town, and it was the call was just horrible. But the technical quality was just amazing. So, again, if you are a fan of the Artemis Fowl series of books, and who isn't, uh, you've got a brand new book that you can go run out and get. Again, it's called Deny All Charges, and you can get it wherever you buy fine books, whether it's Amazon or Barnes & Noble or just wherever you want to get your books, you can go get Deny All Charges. Okay, that brings me to our next guest here. Our next guest is... And I, oh my goodness, he has an amazing dual career, truly remarkable. He is uh, Dr. Neil Bayer, MD, and he, earlier this month he conducted a seminar series for Harvard Medical School's Department of Global Health and Social Medicine uh, about COVID-19. It was a seminar series titled, Science is Just Another Opinion. Again, very accomplished, very successful, Harvard-trained medical doctor. But on the other hand, Dr. Bayer is an award-winning, very prominent television showrunner and writer. His medical career and his entertainment career are just equally balanced as far as major league success is concerned. 
let me give you a rundown on his entertainment television successes here. Most recently, he served as executive producer and showrunner of Netflix hit show Designated Survivor, starring Kiefer Sutherland, among other cast members. He was most recently an executive producer and showrunner for the hit CBS series Under the Dome. He has been an executive producer for another CBS medical drama, remember, A Gifted Man, as well as the executive producer of the hit NBC television series Law and Order Special Victims Unit. Wow, you talking about one of my favorite drama shows, Law and Order SVU. Oh, my God, I'm so there. Well, he served in that capacity as, exec- as executive producer and writer from 2000 to 2011, where he oversaw all aspects of producing and writing for the show. And he was in charge of a budget of $100 million. Oh, my goodness. And right now, he is currently developing uh, a new series. It's, um, it's, a, it's a genetic thriller drama series called The Edit. And you know it's going to be a hit. Of course it's going to be a hit. So I just cannot wait to talk to Dr. Beer. There is so much to talk to him about as far as the medical side of what he does, as well as the entertainment side of his career as well. So by all means, we have him uh, on, on hold. So let's bring on Dr. Neil Beer, MD, executive producer and showrunner. So let's bring him on right now and let the chatting begin. Okay, so um, you have, I, I think that your uh, information and what you're, you're offering here is very timely uh, regarding what is going on with uh, COVID-19, inform me, infect me, captivate me. And so looking at the president uh, within recent days here, what is your spin on, because there are some people that are saying he should still be in the hospital. There are some people who don't even believe he was infected. And there's just a myriad of, of uh, opinions. So as an MD, what, what is your take on everything about the president and this virus? Well, I do believe that he's infected with COVID. I don't think it's a conspiracy enacted by the White House. I, I wouldn't see any reason for that, but I'm deeply concerned about a number of issues surrounding his hospitalization. First, I'm concerned that his physician, uh, Sean Connolly, wasn't clear about uh, the testing, uh, exactly when uh, he was first um, tested and had a positive uh, result. I think uh, that's important to know because we need to know whether or not he was exposing other people to COVID for a period of time when he knew he was positive. Um, so there are those issues. Also, we need to have a clearer time frame uh, surrounding when he was first uh, testing positive so that we can understand the better the course of his disease in terms of what we know about COVID-19. So we need to know a number of um, results that they refused to give. It was very upsetting to hear over the weekend that they dodged the question of whether or not the president had been on oxygen, and it turns out he had been. They kept focusing on that day, Saturday, saying, no, we didn't give him oxygen today, and the reporters kept asking, what about yesterday and the day before, and they dodged that question. So there's been a lot of dodging probably because the president has told them to. And, and you know, this gets into another whole area of what does the public um, need to know and what should they be told. And I think that they should be told as much as the doctors know because we're um, at a point where, you know, many things are at stake. Uh, not only the election, but is he competent enough to continue acting as president? So what are, the, what are the studies and tests we need to know more about? Well, we need to know what his uh, lung findings were. We need to know whether he had severe infection, if he had any kind of um, problems, uh, pulmonary problems. 
and we need to know what his CT scan showed, and they refused to tell us. Um, we need to know how much oxygen he was on. We need to know how many times he was on oxygen. We need to know what his, what's called CRP, C-reactive protein was. That's a measure of inflammation. We need to know what his D-dimer was. That's a measure of, of coagulation. And, and we need to know these things because COVID um, is a multi-organ uh, virus in the sense that it attacks many different organ systems. And some people get strokes, some people have heart problems, some people have vascular problems and clotting, some people have kidney problems, GI problems, and of course, pulmonary problems. So we need to know more about uh, these test findings, which I'm sure they did. Now, what's really concerning here is that uh, the president received just about everything we have that we're able to give people right now, and that is um, the monoclonal antibodies, which is still experimental, which he got on a, on a compassionate use basis. It has been tested in a number of people, but it has um, not been approved by the FDA, and we don't know enough about it. We don't know the interactive elements in terms of if you give it with other drugs that he got. We know a bit more about remdesivir, which is an antiviral. We know that it can reduce the time spent in the hospital. Um, we don't really know clearly whether it reduces mortality, um, but it is given to people in, in hospital settings. Then there's the issue of dexamethasone, which is a steroid. And we do give dexamethasone. The reason why, fortunately, fewer people are dying is because um, they're getting uh, steroids, and the steroids calm down the immune system storm that often occurs five to seven to ten days after someone is infected. So he got the um, steroids earlier than most people get them. That's very concerning um, because it means that they felt that he needed to have the steroids to calm down whatever was going on. So he, he likely had a high fever. We don't know what that, how high it was. And we know that he was having trouble breathing. And just to see him yesterday on the steps of the White House after he blatantly left, probably against medical advice, I know of no doctor, no doctor has reported that it is okay to leave in the middle of this kind of treatment from the hospital where you can crash at any moment. And that's what they're worried about. He has to get through this five to 10 day window because many people fall off the cliff as they say, and suddenly take a turn for the worse, unless the White House is set up with an ICU and a ventilator because you can go and crash very quickly. So it's very concerning that yesterday he left the hospital, likely against medical advice, even though the Dr. Connolly is saying that, you know, he seemed better. I mean, it was all very vague. Watching the president on the steps of the White House was quite frightening. He was having a very difficult time breathing. You could see him taking deep breaths and trying to get his breath, catch his breath. And he had only walked up stairs. So that's very, very concerning as well, that this was not somebody who should have left the hospital. So all in all, there are a couple of things. One, we're not getting the full information, as I just told you. We need to know the results of some of these other tests in studies that I'm sure have been done. Two, um, he is obviously having trouble breathing. Three, he took his mask off when he went into the White House. So whoever is there is going to be exposed to an active virus. Um, so all in all, a very, very upsetting picture of the president's behavior and his actions. Yes, it is. It's quite scary uh, when you think about the impact of other others around him, Secret Service people and White House aides yes. and such. Um, yes. One more question pertaining to that circle. Um, the the Rose Garden event that took place uh, now, what, about a couple of weeks right. ago, there, as of now that I know of, there was no contact tra tracking that's going to be done. And I'm wondering about, you know, the, the people that are not the VIPs, you know, like the, the wait staff and the people who had to clean up, right. that all of them could be exposed possibly. So what is your take of on course. that? 
Well, it's just a complete disregard of the science and disregard of humanity. Um, we don't really know if they're tra tracking, uh, you know, contacts or not. Maybe they are doing it through the White House, one would hope, but they're not really trained to do that. It should be public health. Um, there were lots of people at that event. There were lots of people hugging, touching each other. We already have seen a number of those uh, uh, attendees, senators, Kellyanne Conway, you know, a number of others. And so, you know, they should all be in quarantine. Uh, the vice president, uh, Pence, should be in quarantine. He shouldn't be out, uh, about, out and about because it appears that he was exposed to the president. Now, if they can be clear that he wasn't, that's a different story. But if he was, he should be following protocol. This goes into the um, Amy Coney Barrett uh, hearings. Um, we have three senators now, uh, two on the Judicial Committee, I believe, who are positive, and they're saying, well, we'll go back in 10 days. That is not what we're uh, advising people to do. We're saying at least 14 days after you've tested positive and you need to be tested again. So there's just a blatant disregard for the science, for the public health, and not only uh, for what public health officials and physicians are saying, but it's a disregard for other people. And it's blatant where you have Mitch McConnell um, promoting uh, hearings and not dealing with people who are in real trouble facing eviction, food shortages, uh, it's an absolute dire cataclysmic. We've run out of adjectives to describe the situation that we're in. And now for the president to be likening COVID to, you know, a case of the flu, we'll tell that to the 200 and nearly 10,000 people who've died into their families. It is not like a case of the flu. And I think he's proof of that. He looks terrible. You know, they can put as much makeup and fluff up his hair but he couldn't breathe yesterday afternoon and or yesterday evening, and that was clear just from from my watching him on television. As a he doctor, was in I'm sorry, some okay. distress. Yeah, it it did look not good. Just put it like that. He did not look well at all. Um, since you are a doctor. What do you have to say to people? And I just found, find this astounding. People are saying, okay, of the 200 and the estimated 210,000 people who have uh, died of COVID-19, there are people who are still saying, well, a lot of those deaths were fake. They they died, but they died of other causes, and the, and the doctors are just saying they died of COVID. Well, people will say whatever they want to say, or believe whatever they want to believe for, for reasons that are quite confusing. Um, the number of people who have died from COVID is actually much higher than 210,000. And how do we know that? Well, we know that because there are numbers of people who haven't, who've died at home and they haven't had autopsies. So the number is, is a low number. Um, you know, we, we, you know, I know a lot of people who work in the intensive care unit of the top hospitals in the country, in Boston, for instance, and they're seeing, um, you know, a new spike in cases, and they're seeing it amongst physicians and healthcare providers as well. And so I find it extraordinarily um, selfish of people to say that they don't believe that people have died when they've died these really tragic deaths that you know, are, are preventable by social distancing and wearing a mask and and being hygienic. Yeah, it's just it's not that hard. I don't know. I mean, the the, the virus, of course, is very complex, but the preventative yes. measures are just pretty simple. I I don't know what. It just baffles me. How well, the president the president has made it into a freedom. Uh, situation where somehow you have lost your freedom if you have to wear a mask. And, you know, there are lots of things we are not free to do. We're not free to speed. We're not speed, free to drive and drink. We're not free to um, not pay taxes. Well, unless you're the president where he thought he was free not to pay taxes. This is, you know, I think his going back to the White House is a desperate attempt to show his base that he is 
hale and healthy because if he loses the election, then he will likely be indicted and along with his family. And um, we already know that he doesn't pay his taxes, that New York Times did not make up the numbers. So he's in, he's in real trouble, real trouble in so many ways. Um, also, let me add another point about COVID, which is, you know, we want definitive answers as human beings. We want reasons. We want to know why our child has autism. And so we often blame vaccines, for instance, because, you know, a child had a vaccine and then they seemed that they weren't well after that. The data show that there aren't connections between autism and vaccines. So it's understandable that people want answers. And the data on COVID are not definitive, as they are, say, in the case of measles, where we know how much uh, virus you need to be exposed to and what the incubation time period is and what the you know side effects uh, often are with measles, et cetera. We know. COVID is provisional in the sense that the data are provisional. We do not have a full picture of COVID yet because it's what we call a novel virus. It's new, so we don't have experience with it. And as I said before, we're better able to treat people in the ICU, of course, by using steroids because we understand the virus better. It takes time. So we're always learning new things about children, for instance. The American Academy of Pediatrics blindly suggested that kids should go back and do all these, you know, back to school, but they didn't have the full data about, you know, looking at kids versus, what do you mean by kids? Do you mean elementary school kids? Do you mean high school kids? Because there's a huge difference. And we now know from data that kids over 15 are very much like adults in terms of being some are super spreaders, they get sicker than, than younger kids. So maybe we should have been sending kids to school, say elementary school kids in high schools. And that way we would have been able to spread them out more and protect the teachers and, and staff as well and not have high school kids return to school because they're like adults. And so we're just learning this these things and we are making stabs in the dark when we don't have clear data. And that's been happening with COVID and, and it's unfortunate. So the data are provisional and we're learning more and more, but we don't have definitive answers. And so the other problem for the president is, um, I read some data that said that people who receive dexamethasone, um, one third of those people, because those are people who are really sick, um, die from COVID. So typically people who get dexamethasone are really sick. Now maybe the president demanded to have these drugs because there were three different things they could do. As I said, they could give him remdesivir, they can give monoclonal antibodies, they can give him steroids. Maybe he said, I want everything right up front. We don't know. But we do know from data that if you get steroids, you're pretty sick and your chances of, of not making it are pretty high. So, um, those are data that, you know, we can look at. They've been peer-reviewed, and, and I think they, they tell a story, but they don't tell the full story. So what's the full story? Is We don't know why many people now, we call them long haulers, stay sick. They have fevers. They have coughs. They have trouble breathing. They have uh, brain fog. We've, they have... Um, Numbness. I mean, they lose their sense of smell. There are a lot of different sequelae, we call them, from COVID that we're just beginning to understand because of the way the virus attacks receptors that are throughout our body. So just because the president says he feels well, it's fairly meaningless at this point in the um, course of the disease because we even know that young people, 18 to 35, that a large proportion of them, about 20%, I believe, by the time I look, are not well after like 21 days. So, so we're, we're learning these things, and for the president to leave a hospital and go back uh, is just at the height of hubris. And that's really the president trying to show that he's this hale and hearty, macho man, and he could barely catch his breath last night. Yeah, actually, it's a bit quite sad if you 
you know, think about it. Terrible. Yeah, quite sad. Well, Doctor, uh, we've talked the medical talk here, but what I'd also like to share with people is that in addition to being uh, an MD and just so successful in the medical field, you are also an award-winning showrunner. Uh, what an amazing career you've you have all this success in medicine and in Hollywood, and you are the showrunner for Netflix's designated Survivor. So tell us all about yes. how you got into all of this, plus the other uh, shows you've written for. One of my favorites, uh, Law and Order SBU. Oh my God, we'll get into that later. But let's talk about designated ah. Survivor. <laughs> Uh, I was asked to come on the show to, to run it, uh, so I'm in charge of the writing, the directors. Uh, I'm like the CEO. I oversee the whole show. And so I was asked to come on when the show moved from ABC after year two to year three on Netflix. And so we hired a, a new writing staff, and we went to um, you know, write a show, and we're pretty amazed because uh, episode uh, season three of Designated Survivor took on um, a lot of issues that we're seeing today in Washington, D.C. For instance, um, we did a, the whole season about voter suppression, particularly towards African-Americans and, and Latinos. And so that's been a big issue in this, in this uh, election. We took on, um, we made our vice presidential candidate a person of color, which we now see that uh, Kamala Harris is. We um, took on the insulin industry where in the last debate, they talked about the uh, exorbitant cost of insulin that's increased hugely over the last 20 years. So um, we took on the opioid industry. We took on, you know, so we did a lot of um, white supremacy and the election. So people ask us, how were we so prescient? And, knowing what was going to happen. And the answer is we just talked to a lot of experts about what they were thinking, where we were going, where the Trump um, administration was headed. And we were able to write about these things because we did a lot of research and a lot of talking to folks, you know, in politics. And that's why I think our show is so um, timely right now, the third season, because we, uh, didn't look into a crystal ball. We just looked at what was really happening, maybe a little bit under the surface or wasn't being reported, but we were looking at a lot of what was going on with white supremacy movements in the United States. And we were talking to President Obama's former deputy press secretary, Eric Schultz, and we were talking to experts on the CIA and various other, other areas of uh, Washington, D.C., so that we would be able to um, – hopefully write intelligently and in an engaging way for our audience. So here you are. You're a very successful doctor, uh, just making all kinds of uh, strides in the medical community. And then you flip the script, and here you are making all kinds of strides in the entertainment industry. So how, did, how does a, a, a doctor go to the success in Hollywood? What, what was the catalyst for this? Well, I'm the first doctor writer in, in Hollywood, actually. So, and that's because I was a fourth-year medical student at Harvard, and I received the script that Michael Crichton wrote for ER. And Michael had written it when he was a student at Harvard about 25 years before in the late 60s, like 69 or so. And the script was purchased by Steven Spielberg, and it lay dormant for 25 years in a trunk. And it was found, and so John Wells, whom I grew up with in Denver, sent me the script because I had worked with him on China Beach, and we had been friends since we were nine years old. We were in the same elementary school in Denver. We went to Holly Hills Elementary School in Denver, outside of Denver, Colorado, in the Cherry Creek School District. So people ask me, how do you get into Hollywood? I say, grow up with John Wells, because he was also the executive producer of not only ER, but West Wing, and now Shameless. So uh, John hired me on China Beach, and then he hired me on ER. He sent me the script when I was in Boston, and I came out for two months to work on ER. I had been a writer, and I had done China Beach. I had written and directed an after-school special for ABC called Private Affairs, and I decided to go to medical school. So I went to Harvard, and I came back for what I thought would be two months, and I ended up staying on ER for the first seven years. And so um, I was the first writer-doctor 
uh, in Hollywood along with Lance Chintillo, who's an emergency physician. He was also on the show from the start uh, on ER. And before we uh, were writers on ER, um, medical series from St. Elsewhere on back, Dr. Kildare Medical Center had consultants who would sprinkle the medicine on later, but the shows were not as deeply medical as ER was. It really was a very different show from any show that was a medical show in the past because people didn't necessarily understand everything the doctors were saying, but it felt real. And we had real doctors on the set who would make it look real to show Eric LaSalle or Noah Wiley, for instance, had a suture and they would practice on chicken pieces or we would show Sherry Stringfield, George Clooney, Anthony Edwards, how to do medical procedures, Julianne Mark, Juliana Marguerite as well. So we were teaching them on the set so that it looked real. And um, we were writing from the very beginning from a medical perspective. And so that has changed all medical shows since ER. There are no medical series now without at least one doctor writer, if not more. And so one of my closest friends from medical school um, had uh, done some writing for, for me on Law and Order Special Victims Unit. And when there was an opening, I pushed for him to go on to House. So he was on House, and now he's on New Amsterdam. Um, and every medical series now has doctors. Grey's Anatomy has always had a doctor on the, on the writing staff. New Amsterdam, uh, The Good Doctor, um, uh, all of them. So as a resident, so they all have, all have doctors now. And just the same in, in the way that David Kelly was one of the first lawyer writers when he did it, L.A. Law. Now legal shows all have lawyers on them because people, because people want the veracity and the verisimilitude. They want us to bring the real, the real issues. And we think it's important to be as accurate as possible because people learn from what they see on our shows. And so there's an organization in Hollywood called Hollywood Health and Society that's out of USC that's funded by the Norman, Norman Lear Center. And um, they provide uh, free services to every writer in Hollywood and briefings to make sure that the shows are as medically accurate as possible because we don't want people to watch something and then act on that information if it's inaccurate. Well, I'll tell you, uh, I have interviewed many of the actors from over the years from several of these medical shows, and all of them have said how much they appreciate having the actual medical doctors on board to instruct and tell them and make sure the dialogue and they're pronouncing all these medical terms properly. Yes. So these actors really love and appreciate what you doctors are offering to these shows, believe me. Oh, thank you. Well, we would always record for them, too, and so you know, George Clooney or Anthony Edwards or Eric LaSalle would be listening to tapes so that they could say the medical terms accurately. And they were really um, focused on doing that. They wanted it to be correct. And I know I've seen George interviewed since, and he'll still, like, be able to, to say rapidly, you know, all of this, what sounds like mumbo-jumbo medical talk, but he says it perfectly. <laughs> and, and he remembers, you know, from um, having to do it so many times on the show. Oh, yeah. Well, I got a last question here for you. Yeah. Uh, just so enjoyed chatting with you. First of all, I could just talk all day. Um, I know that you, you still, somehow or another, you still have time to do medical work and do seminars. I understand you just recently did a seminar at, uh, at Harvard a few days ago. And so I, I saw where one of your favorite quotes, uh, let me make sure that I've got it correctly here, science is just another opinion. So elaborate on that comment, because that it was the name of your seminar series, by the way, as well. Right. Right. Thank you. Um, that's my favorite line from Law and Order Special Victims Unit, which I ran for 11 years. And it's my favorite line because it comes out of an episode um, where that starred Hillary Duff. 
where she plays a mother of a child who dies after she contracts measles. And it turns out that another mother brought her child into the park who was five years old and had never been vaccinated. And he had, he was contagious, but he didn't have the rash yet. And the little girl who caught measles and then died was under a year old and we don't vaccinate until a year for, for measles. So it raised many, many questions about what is not only our responsibility to our own children, but what is our responsibility to the community of children if we make a decision not to vaccinate our child and then take our child into a public space? So Chris Maloney's character really asked that question. The mother was put on um, trial for um, involuntary manslaughter because she, you know, uh, exposed children in the park to her son who ultimately, you know, gave measles to the little girl who died. And that was Hillary Duff's character's daughter. And when she's being questioned by Stephanie March's character, who was the uh, district assistant district attorney, the mother responds that it doesn't matter what doctors think. Um, science is just another opinion. And she knew what was best for her child. And you know, the response by Stephanie March's character was, well, your decision really harmed and killed another another person. And we see this, I think, really relates to COVID as well, which is, you know, I'm going to do what I think is right for me without thinking about the community of people you might be exposing if you're um, an asymptomatic carrier, for instance. So this idea that science doesn't matter, that just that's what some people just think, and whatever anyone thinks is perfectly fine, has been really damaging to our country. And that idea is uh, epitomized by, unfortunately, the president, who does kind of promote this, this notion that science is just another opinion and says crazy things and acts like he's a physician by, you know, promoting hydroxychloroquine. I wanted a I wanted a reporter to ask him to ask his doctor if he had been taking that because the many studies that have been done now show that it's not helpful. In fact, it may be harmful um, and cause heart arrhythmias. But if we don't look to science, which is done in an organized way, looking at data, looking at studies, um, doing it in such a in, in, in an agreed upon way over many, 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 many years uh, to make sure that we're not contaminating our findings or biasing, you know, biasing our findings, then we can use science to go forward. And that's why we know, for instance, that people who shelter, wear masks, socially distance, are much less likely to um, contract COVID or, you know, other diseases. And that makes sense, right? Because uh, it's, it's logical, but also the science shows us that. Now, where the science I said is provisional is that we don't really know quite yet what distance we sh should should be maintained. Is it six feet? Is it 12 feet? Is it more? And the science, again, is provisional. It's not definitive. It's not fully clear what the risks are and the differences between, say, social distancing six feet, 12 feet, 20 feet. We will understand that better over time as we do more studies. So the point is, is that when we just relegate science to another opinion, we're really harming the community because we're not following what we know to be true. We're following anecdotes or beliefs that have no uh, understanding just simply because this mother thought that she was doing best for her child. And what she did had very, very uh, tragic outcomes for another child. I remember that episode uh, so well. The fact that you spent 11 seasons on Law and Order SBU, that out of all of the things we talked about in this conversation, that right there has made my day. I am such a diehard fan of that show. <laughs> oh, well, thanks. Well, if you see an episode with Chris Maloney, it's likely one of mine because we were there pretty much the whole time together, and also we left at the same time. I went on to CBS to do a show called A Gifted Man with Patrick Wilson, and then I did a show for three years with Stephen, with the two major Stevens of Hollywood, King and Spielberg, 
and I did Under the Dome for three years. And so that's a, a, after I left SVU. But I loved doing it, um, and I loved the stories that we were able to tell. And um, I loved that we were the first to do Opening the Backlog of Rape Kits in an episode yes. with um, with Jennifer Love Hewitt. And that's what really started that whole investigation of how um, rape kits hadn't been tested and they were sitting, you know, on shelves across in many cities across the United States. So we we um, we were the first to do that and really on our show to, to put, put that forward. And that was very gratifying to be able to do that. The whole show, your whole career has just been groundbreaking in so many different areas from the medical field and Hollywood and entertainment. And I just thank you so much for chatting with me. It's just been a real, real honor. I've learned a lot uh, by listening to you, jotting down notes about COVID and such. So, Dr. Bayer, thank you so much. And I will just continue to watch Designated Survivor and all of the work that you've been doing. And go back and watch some more SVUs now that I've met the person that was really in charge of writing so much of this information. So thank you. Yeah, I say, I, sure, thank you. I often say that um, when I give talks that, you know, the writers and I are Olivia Benson, too, because Mariska right. embodies that character so beautifully and with passion. But all the words that Olivia says right. are from the hearts and minds of writers like Dawn DeNoon, who was on the show for 12 years and really was, you know, uh, a force in developing uh, Benson's character. So it's a shared um, uh, kind of uh, uh, way of, of doing a show, but we want the audience to believe that Olivia Benson is a real character. I mean, she, she's portrayed by Mariska and that what she's saying isn't written in a script, but in truth, everything that Mariska or Ice-T or Maloney or Belzer or Stephanie or Tamara Tooney or B.D. Wong said over those 11 years I did the show all came from the hearts and minds of these wonderful writers on our show. Yeah. And that's what's really, really, like, wonderful to be a part of that and to to give them the words that they can act out and make real. It's such a, a complete package of talented people you guys are. I've got to ask you this really last quick question. Do you have sure. a, a book coming out next year or anytime soon? Um, I have a book that will be out in 2022 on the topic of CRISPR, which is a genetic uh, tool to edit the genome. So... That's a whole different oh, storyline, um, but that's so. So uh, that will be out in 2022, uh, I believe. Um, so I'm excited about that. But I do have a documentary that I executive produced huh? that I still believe is on HBO right now called Welcome to Chechnya, and it won the Sundance Special Jury Award, and it also won the Berlin Film Festival uh, Award for Best Documentary. So. Uh, it's uh, a very hard-hitting look at um, the president of Chechnya and the sanctioned murder by his regime of uh, LGBTQ people. So it's an incredible film directed by David France, who was nominated for an Oscar for How to Survive, the, uh, How to Survive a Plague. And um, I hope people can watch it. Well, I'm going to go watch it tonight, then. I'm going to look forward and watch it. Uh, now that I've met the person who's the executive producer of it, it makes it even better. And Thank Chris, you. CRISPR sounds like that's a future Stephen King uh, movie coming soon. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is a really interesting topic, so stay tuned. Okay, we will stay tuned. Well, again, Dr. Bear. Thank you so much for your work on both sure. sides My of, pleasure. of the equation there. And I uh, look forward, hopefully, to talking to you in your next uh, project as well. Great. Thank okay. you so much. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Be well. Okay, bye-bye. Well, thank you, Dr. Neil Bayer, for giving us so much insight, uh, uh, some information about the COVID-19 virus, 
as well as giving us a lot of behind-the-scenes uh, information about his life as a showrunner, very successful showrunner on all of these hit uh, television series uh, that he's worked on. I mean, what must it feel like to be that smart? You, can't, My goodness, you are a medical doctor, Harvard-trained, and then you are executive producer, showrunner on all of these hit shows, especially Law & Order SVU. What a life Dr. Neal has. Oh, my goodness. So we are just so honored to be able to chat with him. And, uh, again, thank you so much, Dr. Bayer. Uh, and thank you to both of our guests, uh, the very successful author, Owen Colfer, calling us all the way from Ireland. Uh, go get his latest book, Deny All Charges, and so we can see what our guy, Artemis Fowler, is up to. And, of course, we will be eagerly, I know I will, awaiting for Dr. Bayer's upcoming uh, drama series, The Edit, to uh, launch, and we'll see what that's all about. And, of course, we will be anxiously awaiting for all of you listeners out there to join us for the next edition of Film Festival Radio Show. And we thank you guys for listening, as always. And I always forget, I don't know why I always forget to give our email address. If you want to drop us a line, info at filmfestivalradio.com. I think the reason that I always forget to give the uh, email address is because I'm so excited about talking to our guests. We have such fascinating, smart, and talented guests on this show, and I'm just so nosy. I can't wait to start asking them questions and sharing what they have to say to you and to me. And and when you know anything, I've forgotten to give our email address, but that's okay. I'm working on it. After 13 years, you would think I have it down by now. But anyway, thank you guys for listening, and we'll see you on the next edition of Film Festival Radio Show. Stay safe, stay healthy. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to another edition of Film Festival Radio with your host, Janice Malone. Be sure to download this and other episodes at filmfestivalradio.com.
It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.